He says, quote, there is the other who stands at the margin within society and at once at the edge of consciousness within each individual. The, the orphaned part of us thrills to every story of the child lost to lowly circumstance while unbeknownst to the false parents, the child is really the great, <clears throat> I'll say again, the child is really the great wizard, the true king or queen, the secret champion waiting to rise from ignominy to a just and rightful destiny. Yet many, a noble soul does not rise. They live in permanent outsiderhood. The undesirable misfit, tolerated, but never truly welcome. As the other within wanders through the forest of myth and the alleyways of empire, we may catch a sense of meaning and value, discovering that which matters most hidden in the perennial human circumstance of otherness. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by multimodal artist and steward of the Myth Singer Legacy Project, Judith Kate Friedman, to discuss the book, The Other Within, The Genius of Deformity in Myth, Culture, and Psyche, written by her partner, Daniel Deerdorf, who passed away in 2019. Among many other topics, Judith discusses Daniel's story and song, The Other, tricksters and our inner geniuses and the importance of keeping the song going also please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts your support is truly appreciated daniel deerdorf was a myth singer storyteller ritualist composer and producer a polio survivor and early teacher about otherness he toured extensively with renowned soft rock band seals and crofts for 10 years and produced award-winning albums for other artists. When post-polio sequelae required change, he became an independent scholar of myth teaching internationally with Robert Bly and others. MythsingerLegacy.org continues his work restoring myth to culture and community. Judith Kate Friedman currently serves as steward of the Mythsinger Legacy Project and is representing Deerdorf's book, the Other Within, The Genius of Deformity in Myth, Culture, and Psyche, alongside her own multimedia work. She and Daniel Deerdorf were partners in life, love, and creative collaboration for 14 years. Judith Kate, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you and the title of your program. Oh, well, thank you. I have to give credit to a good friend of mine who came up with Rebel Spirit, and I'm the one who tacked radio <laughs> to the end of it. But I like it. I think it. I think it's good, and I think it's fitting. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about a Daniel and his book. And before we get into the book, I thought that maybe we could chat about Daniel a little bit. Sure. And I'm really curious how he made this transition from working in music to myth. So he was a person, as far as a little bit of his history, as a polio survivor, 
He was in what was then, and we hope will still become, that there won't be any future epidemics of polio in the U.S., that he was in one of the kids that got polio in one of the very last waves before the vaccines became available. And so in 1952 and 53, he was living in Akron, Ohio with his family. He was 17 months old when he got polio. And without telling his whole story that way, one of the rehabs that he was given in the hospital was to play the harmonica in order to exercise his lungs because he had had to be in an iron lung. He had it, he actually had two types of polio and had it very intensely. And so, and he lived and he lived through various numerous surgeries. And so some of the way he talks about his physique just a little bit in the book is part of that story of the twisted and the straight and what are the differences between those and the way we perceive them. However, in the music business, it was just a phenomenal gift really that he had become a musician. He, he was in love with the Beatles. He was totally in of that generation. He would have been 70 years old right now if he was still living and he just passed in 2019. So the way that he was passionate and driven as a singer just naturally came through him. And then it came through him as a songwriter. And by the time he was 16, he had his own band in Bellingham, Washington. And by the time he was 17 and 18, he was starting to try to pitch his songs like in New York and LA to connect up. And then in his early twenties was able to meet Seals and Crofts, their management, they auditioned him. He was signed the next day to their management company. He was part of touring with them for the good part of a decade. And it was due to Seals and Croft's insistence that all these promoters who would have balked at a paraplegic in those days being a front opener for a large stadium size audience show, they didn't want to put him on stage, but the fans insisted upon it. Mm. So I'm just telling you a little more than you want to know, but I, I, I want to say all of this because it is a, a through line, a context. Because of his situation in school as a kid, they didn't know what to do with a person with disabilities in gym class. So they put him in the library. So he started reading and devouring the old stories and the fairy tales and everything that would be folkloric and interesting, as well as science, science fiction, all kinds of different things that he was interested in. But that's where he became a scholar, probably at the age of 10, 12, 14 and then just kept having a, a voracious appetite ever since then for learning. So I learned the word autodidact, self-taught mm. person from him. And he called himself an independent scholar of myth. So when he got through the music business, Foibles, which is for another kind of podcast at another time, the industry basically said, we can't have somebody who looks like you become a star. So there's no more path for you here just forget about it. And he was feeling like he was exiled and he was able to come up north having learned. Louis Shelton had produced his early records and from the Wrecking Crew, some people will be familiar. And he was able to have learned a lot about record production. And so from that artist learning, he turned into a record producer himself. He worked with a lot of other artists in the greater Seattle area. And then he was 40 when post-polio hit. And he knew he had to retire, 
but somewhere in the midst of his personal life, figuring out how to cope with this level of intensive rejection where as an early person, your star is rising, you're opening stadium shows after having played coffee houses, people are loving it, you're getting to tour to like 48 states in the United States, and then you're getting, sorry, we can't use this, you know? And it's not because of the music, it's because of who you are in your body. Well, that kind of a rejection was a soul killing in a lot of ways. So his own initiatory journey. And he, as he tells it, he went into like a bookstore and you know how you can sort of do divination that way. Whatever pops off the shelf is what you might need to read. And he opened up Mercia Eliada and he found out about shamanism in different cultures. And he read descriptions of the bones of the shaman being disassembled and reassembled and so on. And he thought that's what they did to me in the hospital. Mm. And so he had this whole visceral understanding that there was something out there. There was a knowledge base. There was a spiritual reality. There was a context that had never before been accessible to him that could help profoundly in his own healing of understanding all of the different things he had lived through. You know, I call it mix of American fear that riddled both the medical establishment and the music business. And he had lived through in different decades of his early life, both of those. And then he ended up having the positive experience of producing these wonderful artists and, you know, knowing his skills were strong, but the long hours required in the studios, especially if you're working for hire, was not something a person with post-polio could sustain. Around that same time, Robert Bly and Michael Mead and James Hillman were doing men's work. And he was fortunate to find out about them. I don't exactly remember the thread of how. And Robert became a mentor and a dear friend. And over the years, when he was then not able to be doing the music intensive work, he turned into looking at the books, studying myth. We have a whole library here that we hope to be able to make accessible over time in some retreat kind of a way with people as part of the Myth Singer Legacy Project. You know, that he really began to just study, study, study and teach, teach, teach and work with his wonderful collaborating partners. And Bly was tracking this as Daniel's essays, first with William Doty and the mythography journal that existed at that time when he was still alive. Doty started publishing his essays and his essays also started showing up in some men's publications just a little bit so this would be in the late 80s into the early 90s and at a certain point his essays kept getting longer and longer and William Doty said I think you have a book here I can no longer make room for these essays in my journal you know and so that began the search for the first publisher which was white cloud with stephen scholl later became caveat books out of ashland oregon at the time and that was the first edition of the other within robert bly wrote the introduction which is still in this new edition and then invited Daniel to teach at the Great Mother Conference, which is the Conference on the Great Mother and the New Father, which Bly had started many years ago. Happened to be on Orcas Island in 2003, and Daniel was living in the Seattle area, or maybe already in Port Townsend, which is where we're based. 
and got invited to teach and he called it his oral defense. So here was this autodidact being asked by another non-academic, the renegade Robert Bly, who was one of the poets who did not have an academic position and you know is nationally renowned and internationally amazing, also now of blessed memory as of last year, that the two of them together, you know, brought Daniel forth as a teacher to this new audience. I happened to be in that audience. Mm. So did Robert Simmons, who also was hearing for the first time. And he was at that same gathering in 2003. And Robert Simmons now introduced us to Inner Traditions as a publisher, but also wrote the foreword for the new edition. And then Martin Shaw and Daniel met the following year at the Great Mother because Martin had come to connect up with the myth people. And so it's not only myth, but poetry, story, dance, movement, you know, healing work and psychology, depth psychology. So all together, that's how we kind of became friends and connected and fellow artists and everything led into everything else. So because I'm going on and on here, I'll just quickly say, <laughs> as far as the history, that the second edition came out in 2009 and included an entire new section of writing by Daniel. And this third edition is now newly out and is has an afterword by Martin Shaw, has some extra words by me to kind of help put the threads together, has a very much expanded glossary of all of these new terms that I know you and I want to talk a little <laughs> about. And, and so that's the path. But for Daniel, it was not different than just different parts of the same whole. Because the myths had always been there, but he didn't even know the names of them. His life experience had been there and it had been of mythic proportions compared to your everyday person that what he got to live and that what he also had to live through. And then there was someone there answering it, which was this beautiful connection of not only the men's work as far as building a steaming community among men and empowering and having different kinds of father figures and brothers in arms and so on mm. but the soul poetry that was part of those particular teachings the things that really started speaking to the heart of the brokenhearted that's really what he picked up as i think kin to his own impulse to sing and mm as a myth singer, he called himself myth singer because that was for him being a bard and a carrier of story, but also a ritualist and a maker of myth, mythopoesis and teaching. So singing, teaching, producing, myth telling, all of one piece in the soul of this artist. And I came into it in, and why he and I connected so strongly in life is that I came in with the singing mm. and also had always been being groomed as a folklorist and fallen in love with folk music early on. So the myths for me had come through music. And then I met the myth singer and we became immediate friends. And two and a half years later, when we found out we were both single, we also became partners. Oh, that's a wonderful story. And, you know, it, I can see how all of this informed his work, but before we look into the work, are his other essays published on the Mitzinger Legacy website? Is okay. there those essays that were in mythography mm -hmm. got revised and updated, or however he wanted to bring them in, or maybe even as is mm -hmm. into the book? Okay. So what he did was like kind of stringing beads 
you know, mm. he found those different places and chapters and he wrote around them and created the other within the genius okay. of deformity and myth culture and psyche. By time the second edition came out, he was doing other writing, he was preparing other books. Mm. By the time of his passing 10 years later, there are a number of unpublished writings, pieces of essays and full essays, including one on suicidality and myth mm. that we hope to publish in the near future. But okay. we're just completely thrilled that this first book and inner traditions has, you know, yeah. come together. So. Yeah, it's it's an amazing book and it, it's a challenging book. I told you that I have read it twice now because the first reading, there's just so much there and just I had to kind of let it set in and then get a second reading to be okay to kind of make sure that i'm getting things but there was a point in the first reading i think i described it to you that i i thought that the text was initiatory mm -hmm. uh, there was there was something there was one point and it was towards the end where it almost felt like it was lighting a spark of sorts it, that there was something profoundly personal not just this communication from daniel but it was personal for me as well and that's why i was like i need to reread this book <laughs> because i wanted to be able to speak cogently about it but also to like just dig deeper in it and and i think his spirit really kind of flows from this text but it's also something that I think is so relatable to so many people. Yeah, I'm very moved by your being moved by it in this way. And, and I'm preparing to teach the book mm. in different ways. Because as I knew that Daniel was no longer here and this huge legacy wanted to be mm. living. In fact, right. one of the last things that Daniel said to us gathered around his bedside was, and he turned to his doctors because he was on some machines keeping him alive for a little while longer. And he said, keep the song going. <laughs> and his daughter said, what song is that, dad? And he said, the song I'm in. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, how could we not? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, how could not, we not agree to do so? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea of the song I'm in because he's there. And I, and I like the idea of myth singer as well. I think that's a very uh, powerful way to describe it because the book is a song. <clears throat> oh, that's beautiful yeah. that you say that. I think the book is a song. It's a tapestry. I used to call it a labyrinth. Bly famously asked Daniel what was different about this book on myth. Mm. And he said, well, I wrote it in such a manner that no one would want to read it. Oh. And it was... <laughs> joke but i you know that i always thought of it as a labyrinth and and you go to a labyrinth over and over again and you see different views of the same thing over and over again and there is that quality of in intention mm -hmm. and now that i've lived with the book very closely well first of all i went and studied with martin for a year in poetics of imagination and used this book as my main thesis for my masters during the pandemic in 2020 so that i could begin to speak with some authority and authenticity about what's inside it. Not only has having been here, and I read it before Daniel and I ever were together, you know, cause I got it from him in that first edition, but I had to ingest it 
I had to chew on it, ruminate as a, as a favorite word in this book to do what the cows and I guess the deer do, you know, to really chew their cud. Mm-hmm. And he gives us stuff to chew on like that. And also he gives us his commentaries and his insights on the, all the stuff that he chewed on, all mm-hmm. of this incredible ancient poetry, different myths, the things. And he called himself an associative mythologist. So he was not interested in comparing, contrasting, or doing like a hierarchy. He wanted to completely blow away what we would now look at as colonial mindsets, Mm. you know, and just like unearth the true stuff that has been covered over by civilization and look at what happens when we put each other in the room with each other, like you and I are right now with our listeners and hopefully commenters to your, you know, podcast and And the myths themselves, the stories themselves, that he really believed that the stories are alive. They want to talk with each other as well as to us. And we need to feed the stories after we hear them. And we want to gather around a story fire in the way that he did for 10 years in his teaching locally, which was to call a fire with flint and steel in the old way, tell the stories, and then have us feed the stories. And only have up to 50 people at the most crammed into this hut to listen around the fire. Usually more like 12 or 20 people. Because that was more like a hunter-gatherer size band. Mm. You know, and what does it mean to awaken our nomadic soul? Mm. So that is a lot of what he put into this book. But he put it into the book in a literary way. Mm -hmm. So this is very trickster, right, to begin with. And I want to read what Martin Shaw says here, where he's talking about the way the book is. He says, as an oral storyteller, things could be different. In that hot seat, Daniel's language was simple and his teaching sometimes fierce, always brilliant. It was there that stories from his years tumbled out, street knowledge. But he also says this way that he used a language that circled around things is like Rilke, Shaw says, I'm quoting Shaw now, he says, this is an ancient and magical technique from the bards of Ireland to Amazonia. It can be unwise to name magical things directly. Mm. And then he talks about how maybe this is an idea, here's exactly where I wanted to find it. There is a marked difference in the rhythm of this book and how Deerdorf actually spoke, like if you were in a conversation with him. It reads well out loud, but is another dimension again to his regular syntax. And that's what makes the other within so precious, Martin Shaw tells us. It's a one-off, a castle heartily erected, and also the hawk that circles the castle. It was a tuned up frequency he conjured. It's typical of Deerdorf to have more than one tongue at his disposal. And then he says that maybe this is giving us an idea of how stories went around in his head Mm. as far as how he put them in and all the associative leaps that happen throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so rich. And, you know, I used different colored highlighters and it was interesting to see why, what caught my attention the first time. Yeah. And then what caught my attention the second time when I was reading the text. So let's dig into it a little bit. And I thought that maybe the place to begin is with the title and we can discuss the other within, but I'm also really curious about this genius of deformity. 
I'm going to allow Daniel to tell us rather than me. So I'll okay. read the very beginning of the book. This is from two excerpts from page two and three. He says, quote, there is the other who stands at the margin within society and at once at the edge of consciousness within each individual. The, the orphaned part of us thrills to every story of the child lost to lowly circumstance while unbeknownst to the false parents the child is really the great <clears throat> i'll say again the child is really the great wizard the true king or queen the secret champion waiting to rise from ignominy to a just and rightful destiny yet many a noble soul does not rise they live in permanent outsiderhood the undesirable misfit, tolerated, but never truly welcome. As the other within wanders through the forest of myth and the alleyways of empire, we may catch a sense of meaning and value, discovering that which matters most, hidden in the perennial human circumstance of otherness. Mm. When I think about the meaning there, today, what rings out for me is the word human. You know, animals do not go, oh, that cat has one more spot than the other cats. You know, that's just not important. I don't think they're judging each other that way. We have no tales from any ancient cultures that I've ever heard that say that the animals were criticizing each other for the little things that we criticize each other for as humans, mm -hmm. like in our physical appearance. Everyone has a function. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the healing work that I think is happening through the book coming out. And why it's the genius of deformity is here. There is the genius who stands beside, before, and beyond us. So this is really, really important that it's not that Daniel, he would start his talks with the, the disclaimer, I guess is the right word. He would make the disclaimer right from the beginning. By the way, I am not the genius of deformity. Because people are looking at a visibly disabled man sitting in a power wheelchair and turned over to the side with the microphone connected, you know, with a, a voice mic like this. And he has a huge voice and he has a huge spirit and he has a small physique and he's in this space and he's saying, I am not the genius of deformity. Because none of us is a genius. And this I learned from him, and I believe from also the teachings of Michael Mead, as far as how they came to Daniel, was we have, and this is from the Greeks, we have a genius. It mm. lands with us, but we are not it. And we could burn ourselves up in bad ways if we think ego-wise that we start thinking we're the genius. Because mm. none of us actually has the capacity to be that. We're not a god. So this is super important in terms of understanding the title of the book. He says here, and this is where he's also connecting up with the work of Gaston Bechelard. The power of this genius is to deform. D meaning, D meaning to remove, and form meaning the visible aspect. I'm gonna say it again. The power of this genius, the tutelary God or attendant spirit allotted to every person at his birth, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is to deform, D meaning to remove, and form meaning the visible aspect. 
which is great because when you think about it that way, it's like, oh yeah, there's the invisible aspect also. Mm -hmm. To remove the visible aspect, Deerdorf writes, is to disclose the interior shape in an aesthetic rupture or Gnostic flood of luminous interiority. The old tribal initiators used this rupture to divert ordinary perception and awaken the imagination to the mystery of life. In the context of the present work, the other within, imagination is understood to be the sum total of all one's capacities. Moreover, imagination as defined by Gaston Bachelard is the, is the faculty, is the faculty of deforming the images offered by perception, hmm. which is why, you know, we've been taught to balk because of the prejudices against people with deformities. Mm -hmm. We've been taught to balk at it or think freak show or whatever. And actually, this is a whole new twist for everybody to liberate our minds. To deform something is to liberate its imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this idea of imagination, that's something that came up for me in the second reading, because I had a quote, I, I don't know the page number, but I had the another definition of this genius of deformity, where he wrote that it's the extra human agent of imagination, our lost and longed for twin, the not I, the wild one, the paraclete, the wounded healer, the daemon, the vengeful guardian angel, whom we forgot the day we were born and from whom the walls of social order have kept us divided. And that's one of the main themes that I was picking up in the book is this tension or opposition between the social society and the individual mm -hmm. and the mythic spirit of the individual that's wild and chaotic, but chaotic in the sense of potentiality, I think. Yes. Chaosmos, the, the yeah. root of all fertility in mm -hmm. the wild skies, you know, like the cosmos and the chaosmos, the great mm -hmm. big bang of that much stuff that is what we're made out of somehow because how else could our brains have become so amazing yeah yeah and what i was thinking of was i i know i don't he may have discussed this a little bit but i know in many of the cosmological myths i think he does touch on this briefly that creation is often seen as the implementing of order and order uh -huh. yeah the implementation of order and because i know he i think he discusses this in the in reference to the babylonian creation story of marduk and tiamat but it seems and this i think maybe leads us to the trickster a little bit but what seems to be happening here is that society creates this order but what we have to do is deform that order in a sense to find our true selves and to live true, meaningful lives. Yeah, I think that he's really pointing to always at the same time, 
mm. interwoven, the okay. both and, the right, individual right. society, the society, the individual. One of the most important themes in the book is, well, first of all, he uses the mandorla, this idea mm -hmm. that there are two intersecting spheres. He would, he would take hula hoops in his teaching mm -hmm. and he would put them together so that we could see the overlapping mandorla almond shape, which is the neither this nor that. It's the place of liminality, which is both the both and and the neither nor. And it's this place where we have a chance to breathe. In my own studies, I have understood now that it is the place of great fertility and creativity itself. And which I hope to write a book about before too long myself. But this, this overlap is in our time, think about it as the heart. Daniel actually has a song called Mandorla Hearts. He wrote a whole album of songs to go with the book actually. And so this one circle to the left, the left-hand side, the one that is often rejected, the one that people used to be taught to not use, in Western culture, that's still orality. That's still pre-civilization. It's the wild, it's the so-called primitive, it's the primal. Mm. And then you have this other circle, which is imposed now upon the whole world, but initially was bumping up against the wild, which was the beginning of civilization, the beginning of literacy. The Sumerians that you're talking about, that was one of the first, the Egyptians, the Sumerians and the Greeks, you know, you have these different huge traditions with many, many, it's like, I don't know if the word seminal, but like core myths, you know, that have impacted all of the other myths in Western civilization since. And those teachings about order, kingship, what righteousness is, who belongs where, you know, all of these categories and lots of hierarchy in those kind of worlds are completely different than the so-called bar barbarian hordes mm. of whoever is out there. And the early chapters of this book really look at that juxtaposition. But when Daniel continued to teach about this wilderness and civilization split, he talked about Alexander the Great's wall literally splitting the human heart so that we are separated from the wildness in ourselves as society separates the wildness from its civilization. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. One of the things that it brings to my mind is, and this is kind of taking it in a completely different direction, but we can come back to this and I want to come back to this, but it is from a the perspective of the situation that we find ourselves in in the world ecologically yes. a lot of that has been created it's been argued by making this distinction between nature and culture right and what we have to try to do to resolve things is recognize that both and that it's nature and culture, that we are always in nature. And, and I also think that what we also have to recognize is that we are still animals. You know, we like to think of ourselves as not animals, but we are, and we, as animals, we are dependent upon 
ecosystems and whatnot. And so that's just how I'm thinking about what you just said and kind of applying it to, you know, the, what we're doing to the world. But uh, yeah, I think it makes total sense. Yeah. And there are people who have been speaking about this for decades yeah. within Western literature, but also before that, I mean, from the get-go, various indigenous peoples have right. been harmed by saw it coming new, you know, didn't necessarily see it coming in order to fight it off because mm -hmm. it's, it's been so intense, you know, from the, as far as conquest, but, but that, you know, whoever heard of smallpox in the blankets, whoever right. expected that level of military might, or, you know, whatever, like if you had never been exposed to it, but seeing it coming that that level of callousness and conquest attitude and machinations literally and figuratively would harm nature and the soul of culture and the and the beingness of life on the planet at large lots and lots of people for millennia who were harmed by all these layers of civilization coming at them predicted that we would be in dire straits if this kept overrunning everything, you know? And yeah, so, and there's so many places in the book, I'm not gonna grab it and quote it right now, where you could find those things. If you who are listening are interested in this environmental place of looking at myth as a way to heal our own relationship with the living world, it's very, very implicate and in some places explicit in the book. Yeah. The other thing that to me, going back to chaosmos and cosmos, as well as the living world and the environment, that's important to name here is another key point of what Daniel's doing and where his thinking is coming from, which is the physicist David Bohm. Mm. And this idea that there is an implicate order. So this is different than imposed order. There's some other thing that is the quantum physicists can talk about it forever with each other in ways that I don't yet have words for, but that this sense of understanding something by not being able to literally see it, mm. but understand how an entire order of how things are webbed together in the life stream, in time, in geologic time, in spiritual time, in cosmic time, in grounded, literal time, linear time, all of it, vertical time, that there is an implicate order. And what that sparked for Daniel was an implicate, a, an inquiry into implicate identity. Mm. So he took these ideas that were about cosmos and about evolution, but, and he thought, what about the evolution of the human being's own psyche? Mm. And that's where the, that thread is. Yeah. Yeah, and it it seems that the one of the main issues is, and it's not far removed from what we're talking about, is that the social order, I think, is the explicate order, that which is imposed, and it's preventing the emergence of that sort of natural order. And it seems as if you know, and some people seem to 
live their lives like that. One of the things that came to mind when I was reading was Thoreau, strangely enough. But one of the lines in Walden is, you know, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I was thinking of that in terms of the social orders that are imposed on people that we are exiled from each other. We're exiled from our true natures. We're exiled from ourselves. And that what is being called for is that community. The And maybe, I, I hope I have it right. Is, is that what he meant, what Daniel meant by the communitas? Yeah, communitas. I'm going to actually read it from the... Yeah. Um, from, it, it's such a beautiful thing. And it's not his own idea. This is very ancient mm-hmm. from the Greeks. In the book, it's defined as the sense of intimacy developed among persons who experience liminality together. Mm-hmm. The deep sense of connection that we experience when we are stripped down to nothing through crisis. Mm-hmm. I lived through the San Francisco quake of 89 when one mm-hmm. of the freeways fell and flattened. Fortunately, only 50 something cars. And but the people who responded, you know, or the people who have just responded to various hurricanes in different places in Puerto Rico, in Florida, you know, like you see people all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what their politics are. Take Florida, which is one of the most divisive political situations right now in the US. But in the midst of crisis, if your neighbor has their house falling in on you and you are free enough to help pull that house off of them, you're there. That's communitas. That's where every other piece of our identity, everything we thought we needed, all of the possessions of the outwardness, all that extra structure, the infrastructure from this level of being what you were saying earlier, animal, human, alive, that comes to the fore. And we are all in liminal space and time when these crises happen like a natural disaster, but also, or like 9-11, you saw the same kind of thing happen, you know, or in any of these incredible proliferation epidemic of shootings and massacres, like that there are people coming together constantly now because we are all in this hastened liminal time and space as some are talking about being in the sixth extinction, I think that in some ways, whether we're consciously walking around or have our identity as environmentalists or not, our nervous system knows, you know, it's just like our inner the cilia, the little hairs on our arms are picking up, you know, like things weren't quite right. They're sort of different than they were, you know, what is going on? Why is it changing so quickly? And this is why turning to myth right now and I think this is why inner traditions knew they were giving a great gift to the world through the re-release and the expansion of this third edition of the book, that it not just be something that happened a few years ago, that it is current. It is more current than ever to the legacy found, the legacy project, the Myth Singer Legacy Project, not only carrying Daniel's work itself forward, but carrying his vision and his mission forward, which is to restore the power and wisdom of myth to culture and community because we need it. We, yeah. we, we need it. And I want to turn back if I can to what yeah. you originally talked about for just a moment, but we talked about before we began this interview, which is the Sumerian myths and the ones that Daniel looks at in the book, not only Marduk and Tiamat, but also Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And there you have a pairing 
of Enkidu, the wild man, and Gilgamesh, the quintessential or maybe even the archetypal first ruler that's not a god, he's a king, you know? And so then it's like, what is the relationship there? And Daniel talked a lot about the not I, the daimon, the one that walks beside you, as in that beautiful poem that's in the book twice by Jimenez, because Robert Bly quotes it in the beginning of the introduction, as well as Daniel quotes it further in the book. I'm going to read it right now as a way of opening us up into that conversation. Hold on. So here's this from one Ramon Jimenez, two lines from him. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see. So again, it's like we have the both and. Right. And I think that it, it's interesting and it's not surprising to me that in being drawn to that whole both andness, this idea of liminality, the, the not only the communitas, but you also mentioned earlier the, the tension mm. between. So the tension between, which Daniel called generative tension at its best, and there's an earlier phrase that comes from Eliada and others in Latin, coincidentia oppositorum, that this coincidence of opposites, what is this energy that happens that is when we're pulled apart that we're drawn together? So that's like a great paradox. A rubber band can prove, you know, show us that. Mm -hmm. um, so this sense of characters in myths that you have these two the dark and the light the man of the wild and the man of the civilization you know the creatures that are completely different and yet they recognize in each other immediately something mm -hmm. and become brothers right like yeah in love, inseparable, where have you been my whole life? I, you have something I need that was missing from me. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they are presented as nearly equals, equal in power and strength, because at first they battle. Well, if I remember the myth, right, of Gilgamesh, that initially when the gods send Enkidu to the earth, Enkidu is more powerful. And a priestess is sent to kind of civilize Enkidu. And that kind of takes some of the power that civil, civilizing act takes away some of the power and that that makes them more equal. And when they battle, they eventually just come to the understanding that neither is more powerful than the other. And that's when the friendship begins. Mm, lovely. And of course, that priestess is also a prostitute, you know, right, like that. Right. It's, it's, a, it's an initiation mm -hmm. into a civilized version through sexuality that's right. being talked about there. Right, yeah. right. Which yeah, is in, not, not rare for the women's <laughs> role. The only right. time that these women show up in some of these. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that the the point though is important that we need the the civilized and the uncivilized. We need the mythos and the logos. And the background where I come from, my sort of academic background, one of the main arguments, kind of in the context of the ecological 
crisis is that we need a new story. And it seems to me that what we've done as a culture, and maybe this is worldwide, but I can only speak to the United States, is we have privileged the logos over the mythos. And even with our myths and religious traditions, and when you take like literal understandings of things, that's logos, that's not mythos. You know, the myth has to be mysterious. It has to be alive and kind of dangerous in in some aspects, I think. Well, I think the dangerousness is very interesting. It's sort of an interesting portal mm. of, a, of a word to bring us yeah. into talking yeah. about treasure yeah. because danger is considered danger by civilization right if it's transgressive mm. if it breaks the norms if it mm. breaks the bounds if it breaks the rules if it undermines somebody else's power and control mm. that's considered dangerous mm. the ones who are perpetrating dangers on others by controlling them they don't consider that dangerous right the ones who are victimized attacked killed by those perpetrators they know that's dangerous yeah so it's very very interesting to even think about what danger is yeah well and it i think this will lead us to one of the main themes i think that runs through the book is that as soon as civilization says oh this is dangerous isn't that where the trickster kind of comes in and you know where civilization well you can't go there you can't go beyond that door and the trickster comes in and says watch me <laughs> i'm gonna go beyond that door i'm going to test this danger out yes and yes <laughs> the, and i'm thinking rebel spirit here we yeah, are right, right. talking about trickster but that the first image I got in listening to Daniel talk about Trickster and Alexander's Wall when he was first teaching about the book. So this is, I've been living with this image for 20 years now, mm. was the idea that Trickster comes in whatever form and actually punches holes in that wall mm. of civilization, allowing what has been walled off to now become porous again. People who are carrying oral tradition are living in a place of much more porosity. That's another word, you know, I'm going to actually look it up here because it's not commonly used. It's not one that Daniel created, but it's the quality or sense of being permeable as in a membrane, able to let substances in and out or through. It comes from the Greek porous for pore, like the pores in our skin, or passage, which is so interesting that those are the same root word and so this breathability you know again when we think about the healing power of myth and in the book the intention of it is the restoration of the wholeness of the broken heart the split heart the split between the wild and civilization the split that went right down our human heart as danny said so this porosity again it might seem ironic or it's paradoxical that to have more holes, to have more breathability is actually to be more strong, mm. you know, more whole, W-H-O-L-E. So bring me back 
to your point, please. So I can circle around. Oh, uh, yeah. I was really just trying to get us to the trickster in a sense where the society is like, this is dangerous or this is forbidden. And I remember there was one of the myths and I, you have to forgive me. I forget which one that he talks about where it may have been the one with Ivan and I forget the, uh, I forget. I, I have it written. Oh, uh, you're talking about Maria Morevna in the terms of going into the dungeon. Yeah, where it's like, don't go into that door. (laughs) So beautifully written in here. Let me find it. And then the story comes back again. And it's Ivan in English and Ivan in Russian. So Uh, with Ivan, Ivan and the great gray wolf is one story that some people might know. And Maria Marevna is a tale that I had never heard before hearing it from Daniel. And it's a Russian uh, folk you know, myth, long, old one. And um, just try to find it here, page four. See how much beauty and depth we can have in a conversation with just pages two, three, and four of this book. Well, you know, you could do that with the very first sentence of, what was it? The denial is contagious and facts are an addictive substitute for truth. You could have a two-hour conversation just on that. Indeed. Indeed. Juanita Robertson, who is one of the authors who wrote a beautiful endorsement for the book, Mm -hmm. said that she spent two years on that before reading the rest of the book in an earlier edition. Yeah. Yeah. So here, this is what Daniel writes. And I think this is just another strand. So just to back up, because listeners are going to be kind of going a ping pong ball between. (laughs) So it's just like, okay. First of all, Trickster is has many, 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 many guises, many names. In every culture, there is Trickster. There's Trickster energy, there's Trickster wisdom. And there are these Tricksters that are these characters. In the Gilgamesh story, Enkidu is the Trickster mm-hmm. in many ways. These characters that are able to live through incredible trials, not by the top-down conquest and domination, but by some other wily way of figuring it out. And for those who are uh, familiar with the Roadrunner cartoons and you have Wile E. Coyote, which is a joke, right? Mm-hmm. Wile E, with the, you know, <laughs> like for the word wily, meaning cunning, you know? Mm-hmm. So here's this coyote character who's a trickster. He's constantly making the incorrect mistake. All of these tragedies happen, but he comes back in the next story. This is a cartoon version that millions and millions and millions of people around the world are familiar with, even if they never realized it was connected with myth Hmm. of a deity that continues to live even after it is vanquished. That's one of the other qualities of Trickster. I can't believe I'm quoting from Roadrunner. (laughs) Well, um, Coyote is Trickster. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Coyote is but that's coyote in a very sacred manner from yeah, Native American different right. tribal to traditions, many different coyote stories in different traditions. And in the North, Wolverine mm. is, is the, uh, where there aren't coyotes. Mm. Wolverine becomes the trickster from the indigenous stories of the North. But here, here's one from the North of near the of North of Caucasus in the not quite Siberia in what has become known as Russia, as far as that huge landmass. Daniel says, facing the other within us presents a terrifying difficulty. 
The trouble is vividly portrayed in a crucial moment of the tale, Maria Marevna. Handing us the keys to the palace, she, the great warrior queen, declares, I must go to battle. In my absence, you have the run of things, anything you desire. All is open to you, save one small room in the deepest dungeon. That door you must on no account seek to prize open. And later in the book, we find out what happens when, of course, Yvonne opens the door as soon as she leaves. Because don't we all do that? But this idea that the person who makes the correct mistake, we think that we have just gotten ourselves in boatloads of trouble. And we may have opened the Pandora's box and unleashed whatever. At the same time, holding the paradox, what we've actually done is moved ourselves into a liminal condition, or in some cases, unleashed a liminal condition onto the world. And that ends up being potentially healing because of everything that we're saying as far as now we're in the both end. Now we're in the, oh no, I don't know what to do. That's why in here there is knowing with not knowing, to quote Lao Tse, knowing with not knowing is best. So let's see. So he says, Deerdorf says in his looking at these phenomenon that we're talking about, if we obey Maria Murevna's interdiction to never dare go in the dungeon, the status quo remains undisturbed. Hmm. Nothing happens. And we live a cheerful mediocrity, to put it in Deerdorf's words. Yet in quiet moments, we may feel a distressing call to the dark rooms hidden in the dungeons of the psyche. The doors are locked, bolted, chained, and long rusted shut. Tacitly forbidden, they are kept out of mind. Thus, the people at the center of things are buoyantly ignorant, while those at the edge are burdened with a bewildering gravity. In the unknown darkness behind the door, something nameless longs for the arrival of one with the cunning and grace to grasp the key. Mm. The initiatory journey of, of ordeals, awe, and thunderbolts will begin the moment we open that door. On the other reluctant hand, he writes, the requisite cost of denial is the endless task of finding some person, nation, or group to scapegoat the great civilizing strategy, foisting our defects onto others. Now, part of the reason the book is so challenging is he has just, in that last line, taken a huge leap. Mm -hmm. Like, here we were, we were in the dungeon, we followed that, we're in our own psyche, we get that. Like, okay, I'm, which side I ask myself as I hear this or I read this, Am I the person that dares open the key? Do I have cunning and grace? Do I make the correct mistake? Or do I hold back and hang out in a cheerful mediocrity? And am I in the center where I'm boilingly ignorant? Or am I at the edge of society where I'm in a bewildering gravity? Or am I both? But all of that, all of those ideas now flowing around in me, making me wonder, you talked about maybe a magic is being woven mm -hmm. here. Yes, we have just been called out in our potential soul conditions in all these different ways, as far as relating to what we just heard. And now all of a sudden it's like, the requisite cost of denial is finding someone or some group or nation to scapegoat. Mm -hmm. 
and make other so that we don't have to deal with all these changes that are wrought. The healing changes, the ones that some part of us really wants, but no way, you know, like, so that's a different tension that we're dealing with in society almost all the time. You know, it's just that, um, yeah, I think I said enough. I want to hear what you want to say. Well, no, uh, it, this idea of the others in the margins and that this mediocrity, I actually had a very similar quote here and he's quoting Michael Mead, who I'm not sure who that is, but it's uh, the good citizen is kept busy with choices that don't count. And it seems to me that what's being said is that when we project onto others, it's not just in this sort of Jungian sense of projecting the things that we don't like about ourselves, but rather it is a refusal to see or to, 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 to answer that call to spirit, to answer the call to greatness, to answer the, the call to be authentic beings. Yes. And the fact is that we are severed by these cultures that impose upon us from the fact that we all do have a genius Mm -hmm. and that we do have authentic greatness. Every single one of us has that. But a dominating culture can't afford or thinks it can't. And this is the transformation that I think we're looking at catalyzing here. It thinks that it can't afford to allow everyone our greatness. Right. So it's constantly othering. And it teaches us that by what in other language from a totally non-mythic stream, one can also call internalized oppression. Yeah. You know, it's like, where do I learn to tamp down myself, mm-hmm. to sever myself, to discount myself, because it has happened so much to me. Until the point where some of people like me or me in different conditions at different moments of my life become the fierce rebel Mm. and maybe self-sacrifice by fighting out in Mm. ways that are or aren't productive what we're looking at here with is this whole other kind of medicine which is how to undermine that which is dominating by actually being true to the roots that are in the darkness that Mm. are coming up from the ground because that It's said in many different cultures anciently that the stories themselves come from the great storehouse that is the earth. So again, the environmental thing becomes clear here as far as how we reunite with the living world Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, those voices are coming up through the stories. They speak to an authenticity. Daniel would say they speak to the 10,000 or the 10 million year old soul in us. Mm. Like there's something inside of us still that recognizes the power and truth of these stories. And he would also say myth is a story that tells the an ancient, that tells a sacred truth. Let me say it again. Mm-hmm. Myth is a story that tells a sacred truth without the use of facts. Mm-hmm. And just the other day, I was listening to Krista Tippett with her program on being a book that came from that program where she is addressing this idea with some different people that she's speaking with, like, what is truth? How do we know how to recognize truth? And yet there's this resonance, you know, it's like without the use of facts, something that transcends facts, 
something that, you know, facts can be different overlays, different names, different stripes, different colors, different shapes. And yet, what is that thing that we know that is true? That for me rings like a tuning fork, you know, like you just feel it. Mm. And the stories do that around the fires of people listening to these ancient stories. And Danny would be telling with a drum and his speaking mm. over the drum and, and this rhythm and it's enchanting and it's hypnotic and it's just enlivening those parts of ourselves in the nonverbal. We're in training to the rhythm and this story is coming and we're going, oh, wait, that's me. I see myself in the story here. I see myself in the story there. Yeah. And he learned some of that drumming and telling from Michael Mead and others. So Michael Mead is one of Daniel's teachers and friend, mm. mentor. And then James Hillman, Michael, who was a depth psychologist, Jungian, post-Jungian as well. Great thinkers, all three of them, Bly, Hillman, and Mead, together wrote a book called The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart. It's an incredible mm. anthology, which says, subtitle is poems for men but it's for it's for the men in all of us our gender identification is but it's just an amazing book of poetry collected from over centuries of different teachings and they three together were so important in the late 20th century in bringing this into not only u.s but english language western culture through what their work was together so just to, to say who, who, where those teachers yeah. are and, right. and where that stream is coming from. Yeah. Okay. But let's go back to this thing that you were just saying about the scapegoating of others and the othering. I'm just curious where that's speaking to you right now, in addition to with the earth, which we've already talked about a little bit. The scapegoating? I, I think that often we... I think it's, we scapegoat everything, I think. And, you know, on one hand, it is easy to say that it is corporations. And yes, it is corporations that are participating in things, but it seems as if we just, I don't know if I can explain this. I'm gonna have to edit this part out maybe. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess it's that, you know, it's, it leads to, I think, this sense of individual, it's not individual responsibility, but a shunning of it in the sense of it's just too much, it's too big. And I, I guess what I see more is not quite scapegoating in terms of the environment, but rather avoidance. And what I mean by that is that there are things that, you know, I, I know people who take climate change seriously, for example, and are concerned about it. And, you know, some of them may have electric cars and whatnot, but yet they are constantly going out and eating hamburgers and ordering steaks. And it's like, but that's like one of the best things you can do if you care is to not eat beef. And so I see this, it's illusion. I see us living in illusion. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I don't know that, um, and, I think, and I think it's a manufactured illusion in many ways. And I think maybe what I want to do in terms of the book is with what you were just speaking about, 
with sitting around the campfire and the myths. And the myths, there are truths to the myths. And I think the myths are imaginal. They come from the imagination and they strike the imagination. And one of my concerns has been, and I've said this many times that I feel like my imagination has been colonized because yeah. many of these myths, you know, I think a really good example is Star Wars. You know, the, I think the initial Star Wars movie, you know, back in 1977 was... It, it lit that spark because it was something that I think had been forgotten, you know, that hero's journey. Right. But now it's like, everything is, it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. And it seems like there's something it, it it's, I don't know, maybe it's lost its power in the repetition, but I think we need a different myth. And that's one of the reasons I liked the, the this book so much is because it wasn't just that, oh, well, all myths are the same myths. All myths are this hero's journey. Hmm. Um, but it's something more and it's speaking to going beyond that and reclaiming the power, if, if I'm making any sense in this rambling. <laughs> Yeah, you are. And there's several different things. And I'm not like right. seriously taking notes, which I often do, but I'm just like instead really, you know, listening yeah. and and hearing different things, including your heart speaking, mm. you know, mm. the care for the earth and mm. this the irony of us trying to do the right thing mm. and maybe still eating meat or maybe whatever. Yeah. You know, like how does action come through us? But then how are these stories related? Like, mm. do we need the great hero to come and solve everything? There is, you know, in our current political situation, people posturing that they mm. want to be the great hero. They're going to solve everything. If we look to the myths in how to perceive. So it's not only that the myth is going to give us a solution. I think what's beautiful, and I've never said it this way before, but I think what's beautiful about the myths is they're not interested in giving us the solution. They're mm. giving us instructions in how to live. Mm. They're giving us instructions in what it means to be a human being. So that, those are Daniel's you know, teachings a lot, like what it means to be a human being, mm. what it has always meant to be a human being, animal human being, and without the trappings, so that we can get back to the communitas, you know? Mm. And so, but this hero archetype, we're still very susceptible to it because as you said, it's been reiterated over and over and over. Now, a lot of people are going to be familiar who know about myth with Joseph Campbell's work because he made myth accessible to generations really and was a big, big bridge between those thinkers and myth that had come before and then bringing it like into television, you know, into the, like a whole new realm of what the media of the time was. And I wish I had gotten to hear him speak in person in some way. And I'm grateful to know several of my teachers who worked with him, you know, or knew him or, you know, whatever, got, got that influence, got that juice. What Daniel was very, very keen on was a different, like you just touched on it, a different myth, a different paradigm. There are certain people, and he happened to be physically one of them, 
and lots of us for various reasons are one of them, that can't be the hero in the conventional way, can't necessarily be the anti-hero either. What other characters are in there who can, in there, in the myths, in the pantheon of the, you know, those aren't even, the myth, just the word pantheon comes from the Greeks, but it doesn't mean that they're like all part of a pantheon. But the, what is it that we have as a resource in all of these different imaginal ways of thinking, being, story, carrying, telling, wisdoms that have been passed through in narrative that gives us something other than the journey of the hero? And part of what Danny ended up being very interested in is what he would speak of as the rat's way, mm. which partly comes from a poem by Robert Bly and, and Robert's own teachings. And, the, and they would riff on this. And I'm going to try and find it here in the Granary poem. It's called Warning to the Reader. I'm just, I, I could probably just try to pull it up on a different device. I'm trying to look now. In the, uh, yeah, see, there was, a, there was a very interesting 1990 there's an anthology called American Poetry, Wildness. Oh no, Bly, Bly put it together. He's the, here, let me look at the camera again. <laughs> so I'm looking in the index and I'm finding like the cool stuff for our conversation. So as far as for, for future references, Robert Bly's anthology, American Poetry, Wildness and Domesticity, 1990. Mm -hmm. you know, so this idea has been being, you know, kind of inquired into for quite some time. And that's why it's so exciting to have this refreshed new conversations and, and new explorations with wider readership, with wider people talking about it, a wider right. realm of people talking about it who aren't only steeped in the hero's journey and the archetypes that got brought into Western listeners of certain kinds of probably more academically schooled than others, et cetera, or happened to watch that PBS series and learned about the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. But now we get to have such a wider and deeper conversation. And because of the internet, we have incredible more access to so many more voices as well, everybody to each other. And I will only spend another moment trying to find this poem. Well, while, while, while you're looking, the, the Bly book, you just, the title, what immediately jumped to mind was another quote from Thoreau, which is, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Mm, I love it. You know, you and I, we got to touch base a little bit beforehand, but we didn't talk about environmentalist right, right. passion for the environment. So I'm glad to find that we have that in common. Anyway, there's this wonderful poem somewhere in this book called Warning to the Reader. And in it, there is the image of a farm granary that, here it is, ha ha, it's a prose poem. But I'll read, the, I'll read the lead up to it from Daniel and then we'll go into quoting blind. Daniel says, Daniel Deardorp, the Mandorla dance. Again, that Mandorla, right? The overlap of the neither this nor that. The Mandorla dance performed openly in the daylight world is a heresy and a sedition. Now that word sedition is very much in the news right now in the US, mm, yeah. right? Seditious conspiracy, meaning 
it's going to undermine. In this book, you will find things that sound like you don't know whether they're on our side or the other side or whoever side you think you're on. That will be intentional because they're in the middle, in the mandorla, where it's actually, it's not so neutral that it doesn't have potency, but it has the potency of the everything. And so therefore it is not torn asunder into one side or the other. It's more the archetypal essence of itself, if you will. So what it means to be seditious is to tear down that which is oppressing. But what it also means to tear down civilization in the case of a civilization that is kind to people, to tear it down may not be more kind to people, it may be less kind. You know? So we might have a lot of different ironies and different overlays of different versions of what domination is. And what a trickster would say about that, I'm just beginning to ponder. And I'm sure Daniel would have a lot to say. He hasn't yet come to speak it to me or anyone else I know in a dream state that we can start reporting on it. But I'm sure that it's coming through in art in a variety of places that we all deserve to listen to. But what, as far as this idea of not always flying to the light, This is very important in terms of what would be called the new age thinking a lot of times, or where angels are lauded more than demons. Demons are still feared. Deerdorf will have none of that. Because what about the devil's sooty brother who says, I am the dark man's sooty brother and my own king as well? You know, what, what does it mean to go in the underworld? Why are the underworld figures negative? because they're really not if you get into the myths. You know, this sense of depth, not only height. Mm-hmm. So again, drawing it down, making it real. This is a different mandorla, the one between earth and heaven that still puts us in the center. The image there is of the world tree, otherwise known as the Axis Mundi. Mm-hmm. And Daniel's favorite image, which many of us now have as our favorites ever since mm-hmm. hearing it, is the Norse myth of the, the Norse world tree is called Yggdrasil or Yggdrasil. And there is a squirrel, name is Ratatosker. And the name Ratatosker translates to drill tooth. So <laughs> the job of this squirrel, which is mammalian, like the human mammal, runs up and down the tree between the serpent in the roots, that mm. primal, which some people could talk about as like the reptilian brain, that image, even if it's been debunked, it's still the primal part of us. And then the neocortex or the the frontal lobe or the executive function or the top-down authority, whereas roots, authenticity. So this is another key teaching in the book in different ways through different stories. And the job of the squirrel is that is this line of communication, which is really our job between Mm. heaven and earth. We're here in the middle in that mandorla. And there's the underworld and the overworld. And how do they talk to each other? In the Norse myths, they hurl insults at each other. And it is the job of the squirrel to convey the insults from above to below, below to above. But for now, the importance here is the rat's way, this idea of like, what is the the deep, dark, underground alternative to the archetype of the hero's journey, the shining one, the knight in shining armor, et cetera. So Deerdorf writes, 
Those who dwell in permanent outsiderhood, in the permanent outsiderhood of the Mandorla heart, must obfuscate. It's too dangerous to show, right? We must have more stealth than that in order to survive. Any person with disabilities knows that in this culture, you know, in terms of being seen mm. by being unseen often, you know, the very circumstance of othering to many different disenfranchised groups teaches whoever's in those groups to figure out a way to still be surviving and seen and keep their generations going and keep their wisdom going and keep their wellness going. And yes, there's addiction and there's contradiction and there's all of these different kinds of things that tear us apart. And there's resilience and wonder and the stories continuing to keep us alive. And the way language has been retained in various languages and the way that idiomatic expressions and images have been retained in art. These are forms of trickster wisdom. You know, this is what keeps us going. This is what we want to widen the space for. This is what we want to give more breathing room for. This is what we want to carve out space away from the high imposed whatever that has been choking out the life force. And here we are at this moment in time. So he says, Deardorff says, those who dwell in the permanent outsiderhood of the Mandorla heart must obfuscate. For the other within negotiates structure by confounding the lighthearted seductions of civil society, invisibly traveling the rat's way. And here he quotes Bly. Sometimes farm granaries become especially beautiful when all the oats and wheat are gone and wind has swept the rough floor clean. Standing inside, we see around us, coming in through the cracks between shrunken wallboards, bands or strips of sunlight. How many birds have died trapped in those granaries, in these granaries? The bird, seeing the bands of light, flutters up the walls and falls back again and again. The way out is where the rats enter and leave, but the rat's hole is low to the floor. And Danny, Daniel says, the poem could not be more apt. There is no food or life left inside the hollow structure, only bands or strips of sunlight. The sudden wound of catabasis, the dropping down into the underworld, the initiatory break that makes us you know, we open that door and then it's like, oh, now what? Or we have an accident and now everything has changed. Health crisis, an earthquake. The sudden wound has dropped us to the uttermost bottom of structure. And still amazingly, the initiand must not be tempted upward, but continue down and deeper into shadow. The rat's way is a hard way. In addition to the wounds and despair of one's individual history, this private descent will, make, will be made more difficult by the collective failures of humanity at its most malign. Paradoxically, such failures form an integral part of every individual and of wisdom itself. 
And he talks about, we need to integrate this, eat it, take it in, absorb it, inspirate it, partake of it as if it is food. He calls it initiatory alimentation in order to have a lived poesis. The, the making of myth, but the making of light. So yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good place to sort of ground the idea of the trickster and the alternative to the hero. Mm. Although yeah. if you would, I would like to read what Robert Bly had to say about yeah, Joseph please. Campbell. He says, Daniel Deerdorf is a true inheritor of Joseph, Joseph Campbell. He is persistent about the intelligence inside the myth. And he gives weight to the wounded emotional body which people on the road of descent possess. He notices that the man or woman who is crippled or fiercely outcast or deformed has an honorary place in the house of mysteries. These are huge subjects for a short book. Because, like for instance, to take it back to Gilgamesh, he mentions that the king in Iron John contrasts in a similar way with the hairy man who lives at the bottom of the pond, which is also connected with Gilgamesh in opposition to Enkidu and this idea of the I and the not I. So all of that, yes, in 220 pages, a lot to chew on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind as you were reading that is something that I have been concerned about or been thinking of the past few years is this tendency of people to focus on the above in terms of knowledge and awakening mm. and truth. And we hear that all the time. And this also, you know, in terms of conspiracy, you know, people are like, I have seen the truth. I, you know, and they, they will say, wake up, wake up as if they've got the light. And I've come to distrust the language of awakening and, you know, I put it in terms of uncertainty that, you know, I'm just, I don't know anything anymore. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, yeah, I don't know anything, but it seems as if maybe the answer is that place in between that, and maybe that is exactly what uncertainty is, but that the light of knowledge always is going to cast a shadow and in the depths and that if what we're looking for is truth we can't privilege one over the other it still it needs to be that and both right well what you just said about not privileging one over the other mm. is the big lesson yeah but and it is the both and and yeah. it's interesting when you were saying that the light casts the shadow but actually what casts the shadow is whatever the light hit right right and that's really what we get to see like when we're looking at our own shadow or the shadow of a building what is the light doing what are the angles like the idea here from the mandorla on out to me and i think this is the reason why the, another word for this particular book is kaleidoscopic mm, yeah. and holographic that it it gives us views in one of Daniel's favorite words was multivalent or multivalent. Mm -hmm. And that there would be many, many different ways of seeing and feeling and sensing 
the wholeness of a something. And each one of those is different, just like each person telling the story each time. It's going to come out different because it's living in the moment. So this would drive the uh, anthropologists to distraction who just wanted the version. Mm. And they would go collect the story. This I learned from Daniel. And they would say to the teller, that's not the same way you told it before. Mm. You know, like, and... Sean Kane, who wrote a beautiful book called Wisdom of the Myth Tellers and is a myth teller. He's Canadian. The, these, the reciprocity is what, as, along with the porosity, is what he speaks about a lot. And he says the heart of the hearer is informed by the heart of the teller mm. and vice versa. So because this is oral tradition, it's never going to be a record that we play over and over again. It's going to be something that preceded the printed page that preceded a recording you know and that's why star wars there had to be that many movies of it or star trek because mm. there are that many stories that need to be told but each one of them does repeat itself over and over again it's, it's fixed in time it's mm. no longer mutable there's no porosity in it except in how we each react to it but it doesn't react to us and this is the difference between a living culture in the moment and what civilization gives us. And this is why in the book, there's also this word liminoid, which comes from Victor Turner, that this, who's an anthropologist, that there's this idea that there's the liminal, but there's the fake liminal. There's the thing that substitutes as the liminal, mm. which they called liminoid. And that's more in the mass you know, civilization mm. mindset. And it tricks us. We, we think that might be it. I think that's part of what's going on with what you were saying with people right. working, leaning for the awakeness. Mm. You know, like, oh, I want the shiny object. I want the thing that I was told for millennia was the white light right way to be. Mm. That's going to make me safe. That's going to make me, like, if I could just erase all these people that make me uncomfortable, well, that would be safety. That's a lie. That, that would mean that we're even more cut off from everything. You know, and all of us other ones, I'm one of them who would be suffering. I'm of Jewish heritage. I'm extremely tuned into what's going on now with the rise of various supremacist thinkings and otherings. It's a lie. People have bought a lie that to be dominating is to actually win anything. Mm. What happens is everyone loses. It's the opposite of win-win. And I don't know how we can continue to raise awareness. And maybe that's different than awakening, but it's very interesting. Mm. I was hearing the irony, the both and, mm. when you were speaking about that kind of awakening, like, you know, and with that righteous thing of like, I have found the way mm -hmm. with the idea of getting woke, mm -hmm. which the people finding the way are against wokeness. Right. But wokeness is about awakening. It's right. all about awareness. It's just who are we being aware of and where is our heart and soul in the midst of it? And I would ask the question in the Mandorla heart to be, in kinship with Daniel's, I think, deepest soul yearning for the impact of his work. 
in his lifetime and now after his lifetime is are we healing are we coming to a place of wholeness if our domination or our comfort or or our rebellion is excluding other things to the point where we do not feel safe we do not feel more whole we don't feel empowered then maybe that's not the medicine maybe that's the toxic mimic as the scientists teach us of what we think we're supposed to be taking in in terms of alimentation nourishment you know the nourishment in the stories are not giving us the text toxic mimic they're giving us the real deal hmm. i can't believe i'm able to articulate some of this with you <laughs> I just greatly appreciate the opportunity for this conversation oh yes of course i'm enjoying it very much and i know that um we don't have too much time left which is unfortunate but because i am enjoying this so much it, what I'm thinking, though, is that I think you're absolutely right that there's a false nourishment, I think, that's happening. And it seems that what's going to have to happen is collectively, we need to make that descent and have, I think, maybe that, you know, pulling apart and coming back together from a collective perspective. And maybe it starts with a lot of individuals doing it. And again, maybe it's both and, you know, that we have to have the individuals doing it. And then collectively we need to start, you know, we have to have that descent into the underworld and the reemergence in order to become a healthy whole society and civilization. Yeah, I, I don't know your heritage, but yeah. I can just say as a person with white skin privilege, my job there is to step off any high horse that I may have been given. Yeah, yeah. And most people will not do that willingly. Mm. One of the great levelers is illness. Mm -hmm. And I think we have just been all initiated by COVID mm. into a most liminal time that anyone could have imagined. Mm. And we're all still figuring out how to cope with it. I think right. a lot of the so-called mental health, which I think of as emotional health crises and soul tearingness and other ways that again, from the book that I learned from this poem of Theodore Retke, which is also in that rag and bone shop book that I spoke of earlier, what is madness but nobility at odds with circumstance? Mm. It's such a beautiful line. I'm trying to live into it all the time to understand anything that feels like it's falling apart, that it's madness. What about its nobility? And what are the circumstances that we are facing? And how can we be in the communitas of helping us, helping each other? I think it really does start individually one by one. Mm. That it doesn't, like the collective that you're talking about, once upon a time in my own activism i think i would have said yes what and now maybe i'm a little older and wiser but or a little more bruised or a little more broken and then mended i don't know but the i think ever there's you know they've debunked the hundredth monkey theory but i can't get it out of my mind mm. that when enough people 
hit a tipping point that there will be a tipping point. And thank you, Malcolm Gladwell, for writing that book, <laughs> which also helped expand my entire imagination and my understanding of humans and how we are. You know, and and maybe animals are also doing tipping points that I don't know about yet. But the other animals than us, I mean, other of our larger kin, that that there's this there's a need. Going back to that first line that you quoted, you know, denial is contagious. And facts are an addictive substitute for right. truth. Right. It's like, it, how can we each chew on that mm. for a few years, as Juanita did? You know, it's just like, and also not let that stop us from these conversations and this activity. Mm. Where is communitas happening for each person who's listening right now? Like, where? I would just ask you all, like, where is the communitas, the enlivening, opening space for you where you know there is no non-belonging because we are all stripped down into our essence of being together? I think we can get there by decision. Hmm. I think we can decide, okay, I'm having shared agreements. I've been in many different communities now that have been exploring these when they're bringing disparate people together and i've seen it work i've mm. been in places where we're deciding things by consensus which mm. was supposed to never work and then all the voices get heard and some new little voice like the tiny mouse in one of the mm. native stories where nobody else can figure out what to do about the great horrible giant and finally we're like the all the other animals go oh let's ask him <laughs> and they have the answer because they can also do the stealth thing and figure out what to do when they won't be seen right you know it's like there's all this layering there's all these incredible ways that we each have figured out how to survive how to keep our hearts open hmm. how to keep hope alive how to keep the song going you hmm. know and and what aids us in our own practice of being a kind and generous human being. Mm. Whatever that is, amplify it. Right. Not by blowing it out, but do more of it. What I'm asking my students this a lot and my coaching clients, what kinds of things can we do to create conditions for our own best selves to be supported going forward? Collectively, if we start going from the personal inside out that way, maybe we also get to this thing about dropping down. Hmm. But following in the lineage that I now find myself in of Daniel and Bly and those teachers before them, Robert Graves, Eliada, Joseph Campbell, all the death psychology, etc. Jung, not Freud so much, <laughs> but others also experimenters. And then all of the other ones unnamed that taught different pieces of wisdom, you know, like, like the fact that the Constitution of the United States and the, the, the Bill of Rights, the idea of democracy is also connected with the Iroquois Confederacy. You know, like that there are places where we don't even know the different traditions that are informing the other traditions. And that's another theme in the book for another time about the difference between adaptation and adoptation. Right. When you right. adopt, you're actually naming the place the rootedness where something comes from and keeping its wholeness 
And when you adapt it, it's more what civilization often does, which is commodification and right. appropriation, you know, and what are those differences? So there's a lot of different discussions and wisdoms and resources yeah. in this particular book, because you weave so much together yeah. that I hope people will avail themselves of. But I also, I feel like the collective is not going to want to drop down. We need to have the various intensity, unfortunately, apparently, yeah. as humans, we need the intensity of the moment that keeps getting worse yeah. for some of us to realize if we don't decide to drop down, we're going to be brought down. Yeah, well, and I, yeah, I agree with that. I think that we are going to be brought down. And I think that we have to tear apart a lot of what we have and recreate and i think that a quote from the book about this sort of deforming that it's a shift of consciousness that has to happen and it's required and when we when we have that shift of consciousness there's going to be this opening of the heart and i think that's what we need now so that we stop otherizing people and start recognizing the humanity and truly compassion living together and understanding the suffering of each other and being kind because of that and being in community and holding each other in that space. It seems to me that's what has to happen. Can I quote from Daniel Dierdorf yeah, here? Please, please. Page 149, because what you're saying, you know, about othering, mm -hmm. it has to start with ourselves. Yeah. It absolutely has to start with those because otherwise it will be another imposition of a set of ideas and mindsets mm -hmm. about the way in which to X, Y, Z. Right. So right. once again, like the archetypal idea, the vision, the longing is for this wholeness, mm -hmm. but how to get there? Right. is going to end up being in all these patterned ways because that's how we've all con been conditioned to do. Mm. So those of us with privilege of different kinds, because it could be economic, it could be physiognomic, physical, it could be our position or status in society, resources, it could be skin color, culture, education, you know, all of these different things, location, mm. to think holistically, like every time I'm hearing you say right now, being dropped down, mm. I'm thinking of the inequities that already exist. Yeah. There's plenty of people that are already dropped down. Yeah. What if they get allowed to lead? Mm. Can we, who are not yet dropped down, go, well, I got to learn something here. Let me step aside. It's mm. the scariest thing of all time for mm. somebody who has comfort, security, maybe affluence, position to decide, how am I gonna survive then? I don't know, how did all the other people survive? You know, it's like, wait, we're all human. You know, a big, huge mind shift has to happen. I think art, as well as spirituality, and to some degree, artivism or activism through arts or however, you know, will help crack that open. I think it always has. Mm -hmm. I think the lifting up of the old stories can help. For sure. I think conversations like this need to happen around every dinner table where, you know, and maybe it becomes a board game. What kind of, you know, <laughs> like there have been some weird trickster board games out there that are dark and like, look at like, 
the evil of us or whatever. Hmm. And that's nice. That's like a movie like Star Wars or something. You know, I like Star Wars, but it's like hmm. a movie of, you know, right. aversion. But what about some other kind of way that we start to ask important questions around our common tables right. and say like, wow, what's a way that you noticed that you were bearing down privilege or thinking you had the right answer today? What if every parent started asking each other, their spouse or their co-parents or their community and their kids, you know, hey, where, where did you take control today? What happened? What if you try tomorrow to not do it and see what happens? Like, I just think we have to develop our muscles of porosity and listening and daring. I mean, this is totally terrifying to lots of people. And for those who are the ones who aren't used to speaking, you can even use the example here of introverts and extroverts. If the extroverts stop, and I've got really lucky that I found my inner introvert during COVID. It's like, oh, that's right. I am an introvert. Caused me to go back to school and like cultivate something. It's great. But it's like, what if those people who don't usually get to speak are allowed the floor? They're going to be terrified too, often. You know, some of them are ready. And some of them are like, I didn't think I could. Yeah. How do we help each other out? The mandorla is to me a good image of the being in the both and for the beauty of the wholeness of it and recognizing that like Enkidu and Gilgamesh, like the half child in maybe not in this book, both Daniel and Mead have a telling of it where a child is born with only half their body. This is from Kalimantan in Indonesia. And then and he wails and wails and wails the entire time to the point that the village is freaked out and decides, oh, when this child turns of age, they're getting kicked out and they have to figure out how to get along on their own. And they find a big lake in their travels. And in the lake, uh, actually before they even fall in the lake, they see this other being coming towards them. This is again, an I, not I. Hmm. It's their other half, but it doesn't look like them. They just see it as another half child or another half being. And do they embrace it? No, they hate it. So they completely like, that's the internalized stuff, right? And they just eat it and they tussle and they end up in the lake. And when they come out, they have been transformed into a whole being, but not an able-bodied, normal, you know, whole being that hadn't already gone through the history of what they were when they were half of a body. Now they walk zigzag and that's, the whole village welcomes them in this case, and the whole village takes it up and has a new way of walking. Wow. You know, so that, these are the stories that have been carried forever. Why? Why do we need these stories? Because they remind us of something that we forgot. Right. You know, so I'll read this one part here from page 149. Intolerance without, Deardorff writes, breeds intolerance within. Social castigation on the one hand and the shame of self-contempt on the other. Make the ambivalent battleground of the other within. Here is the unremitting struggle, not to redeem or transform one's self-image in the mirror of malicious eyes. That's a poem line from William Butler Yeats. And it's something that Daniel comes back to again and again. 
as far as how we're being seen by others. Not to redeem or transform, or I would add, try to please by morphing oneself to fit what is in the mirror of malicious eyes to make them like us, but to reclaim and integrate all our negative and anomalous faces, our own, as well as everyone doing it, and collectively our anomalous faces, all of them, the undomesticated, the stupid, the ugly, the deformed, the malignant, each arising to its singular orbit in the constellation of what we consider we are. We, as human beings, yeah. animals in the yeah. great pantheon of, of life. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite beautiful. And the book is just so chock full of wisdom and beauty. And it's... Uh, uh, Again, like we've mentioned, <laughs> I think several times now, it, even one sentence, you know, can be discussed and chewed on for a very long time and meaning can be found. I, I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to read the book and read it twice now. <laughs> and I think it's something I'll go back to a few more times just to try to wrap my head around everything and, and not just the head, but the heart and the soul as well. I think that's important there because it's definitely... It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song he wrote there. I love that you're calling it a song. I think he'd yeah. be thrilled. Yeah. It's like, oh, can you hear all the harmony and the dissonance yeah. together? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, <laughs> yeah, and that's what we need. I think we need, you know, there's a, a call to it for us to have a collective song, you know? So I, I know that you've got to run. You've got something else coming up here shortly, and I'm going to have to go to class. But let me ask, what's coming up? What's uh, What do you have coming up next uh, with the Myth Singer legacy? Well, I know that you're going to have this on the podcast posted, so people yeah. will see it soon and they'll see it later. Mm -hmm. So the best thing is to look up uh, on the events because what we started doing this year is a series of, Daniel used to do the monthly where I was talking about calling the fire and telling the story and then feeding the story in small groups. We've been meeting with, you know, like up to 20 people or so. And it's not capped at that. It's that that's just who's been showing up in an online Zoom format. So we've had people like sometimes from seven countries at one time around this virtual hearth, which has been marvelous. And we will continue these story nights into the foreseeable future. And when we run out of recorded stories of Daniel telling, which is what we've been using, we've been finding pieces as we make the archive, we've been cleaning them up with digital mastered, better quality because they were recorded live. Mm -hmm. And then we've been showing a video of Daniel calling what ended up being his last fire, a film that I took of him calling fire with flint and steel kindling, singing a song he wrote about calling fire. Mm. And then we bring in the fire, we bring in the elements, the elementals, the sense of our ancestral lineage of how we're connected, you know, all of the various pantheons, all of the living world, the sense of presence. And then we have the story. And this is the tradition that I learned from Daniel. You have to call everybody in because an old story is going to be told. And so we do that. And so far, we've been doing it virtually. And because it's so accessible this way to many, many people, and we get to build these cross-cultural relationships across continents, 
we've been blown away, we being the Myth Singer Legacy Project. So we're going to continue those, but we're also, you know, creating more book events that will be both live and hybrid and, and, and online with different booksellers, we hope, as well as different community groups that are interested in these different issues. As you can tell from this conversation, there's probably at least 15 to 40 or 50 different strands that we could have a whole night on. And I have been preparing a course. So I plan to, and people have been asking for a book group because it's much easier to read this out loud and talk about it in little pieces. But I think the book group will be one thing and it'll be probably some workshops. And then there will be in 2023, the beginning of a course that will be also a longer deep dive for those who want to do it. I don't know if it'll be affiliated with an academic site or some other kind of school of myth, but we'll figure out how that rolls. You can look at mythsingerlegacy.org slash events for that. Mm -hmm. And you can do slash the dash other dash within to find the endorsements and also the bio of Danny and some links to some of the music mm -hmm. that will ultimately be in the audiobook. People can look forward to the audiobook hopefully coming out in 2023 before too long. That will be read by myself, a great honor that they said yes to me being the narrator. There's one other, um, you mentioned in the beginning that I'm a multimedia artist mm. and I'm now continuing, as of this weekend, changing that title to be a multimodal, a multi, if I can say it, <laughs> a multimodal artist, the very many modes and forms and, and nodes and things. And so I will give one website where people can see my master's dissertation and a lot of poetry, film, and other things that have to do with two main themes. It's called mandorlarising.net. Hmm. And if you go there, you will find, you will enter a portal into a gallery, an online gallery. Some of it is interactive. You can leave comments there and so on, and, and they'll be answered. We haven't really had that part interacting yet, but it's open. And what you'll find there is my own take on the book and on my life with Daniel and on the examples of kinning with the living world in the midst of grief after his passing. Mm -hmm. So all of those things are woven into that dissertation project, which is at mandorlarising.net. And then again, mythsingerlegacy.org is the regular front page whole website for Daniel's legacy work. Okay. Thank I you will, so much. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I will put links for both of those in the show notes in the video description. And I'll also put links for the book so that people can get it. And I highly, highly, highly recommend getting a copy of this book. It's well worth reading. It's a beautiful read and it's food for the soul. So yeah, get two so you can give somebody <laughs> yeah. who needs Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Judith Kate, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you. And I really appreciate and treasure the time that we've spent together. Thank you. It has been a treasure. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 66 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, please consider becoming a patron. There are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, 
access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd still like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I mentioned before, I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please, by all means, help spread the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace. May you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.